welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is brought to you by Wellness. That's wellness with an E on the end. My new personal care line of products that are natural and good for you, hair care, toothpaste, hand sanitizer, and more. You've likely heard that much of what you put on your skin is absorbed into your body, which is a good reason to avoid harmful products. And I feel like many of us do, but you can also use this to your advantage by putting beneficial things on your body. Realizing that many of my closest friends and even family members still used certain conventional personal care products, even though they cleaned up many other parts of their diet and wouldn't dream of eating processed food or using harmful cleaners, but they weren't willing to sacrifice how they looked and felt when it came to personal care products. I set out to create alternatives that outperformed the existing conventional options, but without harmful ingredients and with beneficial ingredients that benefit the body from the outside in, and thus Wellness was born. Our good for you hair care and mineral rich toothpaste nourish your body from the outside in, while you hopefully nourish it from the inside out to have amazing hair and teeth. Check it out and learn more at wellness.com. That's wellness with an E on the end, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-E.com. This podcast is sponsored by Olipop Natural Sodas. They use functional ingredients that combine the benefits of prebiotics, plant fibers, and botanicals to support your microbiome and benefit your digestive health. 90% of Americans consume more than the USDA's daily recommended added sugar intake, which is 30 grams. In fact, many of us consume way, way more than that. And sweetened beverages like soda are one of the leading sources of added sugars in the American diet. Olipop is much, much lower in sugar than conventional sodas with only two to five grams of sugar from natural sources. No added sugars. Here's an example. Their vintage cola has just two grams of sugar compared to a regular cola, which has 39 grams of sugar, which means one can is more than the added sugar recommended for an entire day. Their orange squeeze has five grams of sugar compared to other orange sodas, which clock in at 44 grams of sugar. And all of their products are non-GMO, vegan, paleo, and keto friendly with less than eight grams of net carbs per can. I've worked out a special deal just for Wellness Mama podcast listeners. You can save 15% off your entire purchase from Olipop. I recommend starting with their variety pack unless you already know your favorite flavors. And the variety pack is a great way to try all of the flavors they have. My favorites are the strawberry and the orange, but my kids really like the root beer. Check them all out by going to drinkolipop.com forward slash wellness mama and use the code wellness mama at checkout to claim the deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-O-L-I-P-O-P.com slash wellness mama. You can also find them in stores across the country, including Kroger, Whole Foods, and more. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and wellness.com, my new personal care line. And this episode is all about understanding consciousness, ego, and how to reduce suffering. I'm here with polymath Dr. Ted Achacoso, and make sure to tune into part two of this as well, which will air next. And that one will go deep on the science of psychedelics, and I go deep on why I decided to take certain substances. And the reason I chose Dr. Ted for these episodes is that he is widely considered the world's smartest doctor, having gotten his doctorate at 22 with many uh, different fields of focus that he's had over the years, everything from pharmacology and toxology, neurology, interventional neuroradiology, medical informatics, artificial intelligence, and much, much more. He is 
one of truly actually the smartest people in the world, having scored a 210 on the Stanford Binet IQ test, which is approximately 15 to 16 standard deviations above normal. So to put that in perspective, his IQ is literally one in a billion, and he's using that to do good in this world in many different ways. I've interviewed him before about his company that makes nootropics that have helped me focus tremendously. And I thought it was important to go deep in these episodes about topics he understands from both the medical and the meditative side, which is consciousness, ego, how to alleviate much of our own suffering. And then, as I mentioned in the next episode uh, about the science of psychedelics, which are an emerging area of research and a lot of fascinating data on that. I know that you will learn a tremendous amount from this episode. I certainly did as well. Dr. Ted is always a pleasure to talk to. So let's dive into episode one. Dr. Ted, welcome back. Thank you to my favorite wellness mama. <laughs> well, it's such a pleasure always to speak with you. And I am especially excited today to have your help in talking through a topic that I feel like there's, well, several topics, but where there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding. And you come at this not just from the perspective of one of the smartest physicians in the world, or often called, I believe, the smartest physician in the world, but also from many years of consciousness and meditative practice. And so I think you have two incredibly unique and very valuable frames of reference when it comes to these topics. And I've heard you say before that we are in a time when upgrading the human consciousness is especially important. And I've, I've said for a long time that I think moms are very much the front line of any societal change, but especially here, because we have the unique ability and privilege of directly interfacing with the next generation every day. And I think moms are incredibly powerful and forces of nature in so many ways. And so I am, it's an honor for me to get to talk to all these parents daily and to get to talk to you and to connect some information that I hope will help a lot of moms and a lot of the next generation as well. So we're going to go a lot of different directions today, but to start broad, I want to just start delving into the idea of consciousness, because I feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding, even on what that term means. And then beyond that, we'll go through a lot of different layers. So start broad with us and explain some of the things we need to understand related to consciousness. Sure. Um, when you hear the word consciousness these days, right? Um, it's very difficult to extract from a person exactly what it means. So what it usually means for a doctor, and that's why I call this the medical consciousness or the medical definition of consciousness, is uh, it's actually a negative definition. It says that which goes away when you're asleep, right? When you're uh, in a dreamless sleep, or uh, that which goes away when you're under anesthesia, right? So it's a negative definition. It's what's not, right? And and if you take a look at, for example, when they're rating comma in the hospitals, there's a Glasgow comma scale, right? So that is um, uh, uh, what's called um, a I, what I term a medical definition of consciousness. And uh, the reason why it's very confusing is because we confuse it with philosophical definitions of consciousness, scientific definitions of consciousness. But let's let's call that the medical definition of consciousness, so we don't get led astray, right? So. Um, what are the elements of this medical definition of consciousness? And when you look at it, uh, really from just a physical standpoint, we're actually, um, as doctors, we're able to identify it in the hospital. For example, say you fainted, right? Uh, so you lost consciousness, right? And so when you wake up, you are described as being awake, right? So awake is the first component of consciousness. It's... Um, 
what's called interoceptive or the sensations of being woken up are getting are coming in from inside your body like waking up in the morning right there's nothing outside that's really waking up you wake up and that's called an interest the interoception uh portion of consciousness and simply called you know it's waking up <laughs> so and and so the 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 intern or the doctor will call you awake and then there is such a thing called um, the next thing is extra receptive, meaning uh, you you look around and you're responding to stimuli. So it's an extra receptive form, right? And what do we call this in regular language? Is alert, right? You're alert. You're, you're looking around, etc. And then what's the next the next thing that the doctor tells you? Do you know your name? Do you know where you are? You know what the date is, right? So that's oriented or orientation. That's already abstract because language you know, is an is an abstract form so so uh, it's called the abstractive layer of consciousness so you have the interoceptive you're awake you're uh extra-receptive you're alert and you're uh abstractive which is you're oriented so alert awake awake alert and oriented so very simple to to um uh, remember what medical consciousness is. So when you when someone talks about it, that's usually the way we uh, think about it, right? But uh, there are you know uh, many uh, spiritual definitions of consciousness, scientific definitions of consciousness. So so let's set medicine con um, um, uh, let's set uh, medical consciousness aside, and now let's take a look at uh, you know scientific views on on consciousness and scientific borders on philosophical because the philosophical part of it is really very simple as you know i really love to uh divide things into two things that i can just remember right even just to teach <laughs> two things i remember one is to ask yourself a question you know is is consciousness an inherent property uh of the universe like meaning our atoms, you know, uh, and their subatomic particles, etc. Are they conscious, right? So that's uh, um, the uh, panpsychic model of consciousness, right? Is everything conscious? So that's uh, that's from from the philosophy. It's an inherent property. And the other uh, other camp is the emergent property of consciousness, right? So does consciousness arise from the complexity of processing, and it arises from there. You don't have to. You don't have to take one camp or the other, right? This, these are the way we uh, explain these things. So, so why why does this have so much bearing on us, right? <clears throat> it's because right now there's a, there's a huge ten million dollar contest going on between two camps, trying to prove which one is actually um, the uh, the correct one. You know, if they're both incorrect, if it's something else, then at least we've shown the way, right? So there's what's called um, the first one is called the global workspace theory, and um, this global workspace theory says the the following, right? There is a work, uh, there's a portion in your brain called the working memory, and it's usually in the frontal cortex, right here by the by the by your forehead, right, ba the back of your forehead, and 
what happens there is that that's where you do all your planning you know if if you have someone who plans all the time it's basically an overactive um a prefrontal cortex and it's said that anxious people actually have a very hyperactive uh prefrontal cortex because they plan all the time they miss out on um uh, on what's happening in the present what is it that uh, lennon said uh, the beatles or lennon right life is what happens when you're making other plans so um and that the prefrontal cortex that's its function it's actually the newest portion of your brain right so your capacity to plan and and project for the future is actually new to us as uh, as an organism so it the the uh, global workspace theory says that uh you know when your uh, when the sensory inputs arrive like what you see what you hear what you smell what you taste they arrive at the global workspace right so there's like working memory in there and then they're going to be parceled out to the parts of the brain and remember the brain is has different components to the parts of the brain that's going to process it and it says that consciousness arises uh, as an emerging property of it emerges from the uh, computation from the distribution right of the of the signal to the different components so that is an example of an emergent point of view right it's just it's arising from the processing of the brain the other part um uh, is uh, is called the integrated information theory or iit now <clears throat> this is a little bit more difficult in terms of uh, uh of the philosophy but it's basically if you boil it down it's more of an emergent uh, inherent property uh conscious and inherent property essentially it says that you know um you could you could put together like uh pieces of of uh, molecules like uh, or pieces of uh, of uh, uh, matter uh, like that to make a thermostat, for example, and it will have some um, some form of consciousness, right? Because it is actually it actually is able to process information out of those uh, 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 different components of this going. So here, right, you don't necessarily have to be alive to do it. Right, uh, it, you don't necessarily have to be allowed to do it, and that's the fundamental difference. Here is there's um, the emergent and um, uh, inherent properties, and most of the, of course, the uh, spiritual world, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, think that the whole universe is conscious. So it's already coming from an inherent um, uh, point, consciousness, an inherent point of view. Now, there is something very important uh, that I always uh, really like to emphasize here, is like. Is the is a concept out there that in order for something to be conscious, it needs to be alive, and that's where you can really get into trouble, right? Uh, because if you are from the panpsychist mode, it's like so: um, is is an atom alive, right? Is a subatomic particle alive? So then you get into that particular trouble. But let's get into the definition now of biological life. Right. Uh, so biological life has a, a definition and you can take a look at all the requirements out there of what it is to be biologically alive. Right. And biological life actually means that you are um, physically close, meaning you have a boundary, but you're energetically open. You have to take your energy from the environment. Right. So like us, we eat. You know, in fact, uh, what we say is the only reason why we move is we have to find something to eat, right? So, uh, so that's that's a uh, 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 whole uh, concept behind uh, that thing. 
is that you are basically physically closed but energetically open. And this, you know, to your um, to your listeners, Katie, should give you pause, right? Uh, why you should care only about yourself and not care about the environment. Look, you know, um, your the carbon dioxide that you breathe is converted to oxygen, not only by the trees around you, 80% is actually converted by the phytoplankton in the oceans, right? So those these are these are the uh, the miniature plants in in the o oceans that actually convert your um, uh, carbon dioxide to oxygen. So you could see uh, like like uh, you know we we are focused for example on on uh, just on ourselves, but we are really very open to the environment, and that's why for example I'm a big proponent of uh, vitamin D, right? Uh, taken from sunlight, exposure to sunlight, grounding, etc. Because you are not separate from it. You know, you you should consider yourself as as uh, actually an, uh, just an organism moving in an environment. So now, so so the question now becomes, and and this is where uh, much of the uh, confusion arises, right? Does consciousness only uh, arise in uh, living things, and therefore you have to define what it is to be alive, right? And I actually there is a definition of what biological life is about right and you could see this are we already blurring this and to add more to the confusion there's a whole field out there which your children will be actually be immersed in it's called synthetic biology right where they are actually creating life forms from uh from uh, from uh, raw materials right so far we haven't created a pure life form from uh, synthetic materials but we have been able to create um to to remove uh, the DNA and replace it with an all synthetic DNA and just a few weeks ago right they showed that this this version that they have can actually replicate right uh, it can replicate uh, regularly so this will be the technology of your children's generation I mean we're gonna be left behind here but uh, this is rapidly developing and so on so all the more they will need to to have clearer definitions of what's life, or perhaps we could erase it altogether and put it in all in a spectrum, right? Not one suddenly doesn't just become alive, just as one suddenly doesn't become as conscious, and that's espousing sort of like the inherent uh, property, right? So inherent, you, you add more and more uh, proto-conscious elements into something, and the more it gets conscious, right? So. Uh, that's that's a question that to 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 ponder is you know do you be alive to be conscious to be to be medically conscious yes of course because you have to lose consciousness within the context of life right so remember that these have separate defini definitions so you could see now why there is such uh, confusion right so for me it's easier to basically uh, keep in mind that well okay there is a uh, medical consciousness, which we talk about when we're talking about fainting and accidents and concussions, you know, um, and so on. And then, and then there is the philosophical and scientific, uh, you know, um, views of consciousness, which is there are the inherent in uh, inherent a property of the universe. Uh, we don't know if they're just an inherent property of matter or is energy itself conscious, right? So we, we don't know that. So we, we don't have any answers to this. But part of the beauty of uh, equanimity is that you can rest in the uncertainty, right? You 
Well, yeah, it's uncertain. Uh, and, and then, um, uh, and the other part is it's emergent. You know, as, as you process information, uh, then you, uh, the, there's, a, there's this property uh, that's, that's called consciousness. So that's, that's now the uh, scientific basis of that. And if you take a look now at, you know, um, when you move now towards, and these are very important because it's easier, uh, for example, to teach um, uh, these concepts if you, before you have to like take a look at the sacred text and see what it means, right? But now you could actually correlate with science what's going on. And one of the biggest discoveries, of course, um, and I don't, I, I presume that uh, many of your listeners had it, is that um, the seat of the self uh, or uh, what they call the seat of the ego uh, is uh, now uh, presumed to be known, right? And here I won't use the term ego because ego is a very value-laden, right? It's, uh, we usually use it as one's inflated view of one's self-worth. And that's not exactly what I mean here. You know, what I mean here is a self-referential system. Anything that refers to yourself, right? I am Katie. I was born here. This is what I do. I have this number of kids. I see my husband and, you know, and so on and so forth. So that's a refer reference to yourself, right? And that's the single most important concept, I think, here that we need to to expound on because it's been very much misunderstood, right? The self is different from consciousness, okay? So the self is a, it, the self, what I'd like to say here is the self is an appearance within consciousness. Okay, so what do I mean by that? So let's look at it just from a physical point of view, right? So there are what's called neural correlates of, of uh of the ego, right? They're neural correlates of the, the what's called the default mode network of the brain. In other words, it's a network. The first thing I'd like to remove from the, the uh, beliefs of your listeners is that the self or the ego, you know, is not a noun, it's a verb. In other words, it's a process that's continuously uh, being created and destroyed the whole time, right? So, um, so, Think of your true identity as, you know, Katie, right? And then say you are an actress and the self, you know, uh, the self that you're really projecting out there, there are many, right? And those, these are the roles that you take when you're on stage, right? You may be Kate in The Taming of the Shrew. You might be, you know, uh, the queen in another, in the queen of the damned, you know, and, and so on. So th these are the... Um, these are roles. Uh, essentially, the way you look at uh, you look at self or you look at ego as roles, right? They you don't you don't have to believe in them, but while you're acting, right, it's as if it's true, right? But the key part is not to forget that you're just playing a role, right? So, um, and that's that's very important. Now, in in scientific terms, the default mode network, uh, the way I describe it is really um, a very simple. If you, uh, for example, imagine a series of lights, right, in, in arranged in a circle, right, arranged in a circle. So say one of those lights to represent your memory and the other light represents your uh, emotion, right? The other light represents your uh, planning, right, uh, ability. The other uh, light represents your decision-making ability, right? So say there are, there are sub-networks of those and they're arranged in a circle, right? When your ego or yourself comes up, you know, it 
lights up as if everything is going in a circle, right? It lights up as if everything is going in a circle. It's an illusion. That's why the, the self is called an illusion, right? The, the ego is an illusion or the self is an illusion. It's because it arises from the processing uh, of the brain. Right. So right now I am Dr. Ted, the doctor who is, uh, you know, uh, trying to explain what the self is all about. And uh, and that draws on my memory, my emotions, you know, uh, and, and everything else that's there. So you see this is like, like going round and round. But when you quiet yourself down in meditation, right, when you try to meditate, uh, say you quiet yourself down, you will see this as just popping up as a memory, right, or as an emotion, or as a plan. There's really no thinker. There's really nothing that's integrating everything. So the ego is the conductor. It likes to integrate, you know, um, it likes to integrate things. And it's there because in evolution, in during evolution, right, um, during evolution, you needed it. Right, uh, you needed it to have what's called a sense of agency, meaning you are separate from others. You notice that your ego arises when you abut against another. Right, uh, it's it's a, when you abut against another person, especially or your child, or essentially when you abut against a relationship. It, not not necessarily human, right? You abut against your relationship with your job, your relationship with your house. I have such a small house. I want a bigger one. Right, so you, you, you. I'm sorry, I swore. Uh, but, uh, but, um, uh, so you see that it's all about how how it abuts on relationships, your relationship with your time. It's like I am not given enough time to finish this. You see how how it actually, uh, uh, basically, is very protective, right? It's very protective. But at the same time, it also also closes you, right? It closes you, and makes you think that that's the world. Right, uh, it, it makes you, it closes you, and that's they think that that's the world. And so, but when you slow it down, and without even meditating, you could actually experience this yourself in the morning. Right, when you wake up and you just open your eyes, there's a period of mild disorientation, right? Because the self hasn't crept up yet. Right. So you look out, and there's just brightness. There's this color, you know, uh, and so on. And, you know, uh, right before, holy, f I have to do one, two, three, four, five, I have to call this, I have to run, da, 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 da. And you see that it's already formed, right? It's right there. It's like, this is Katie, you know, in, in her Katie mode that has to, to be very efficient and do her time management and, and so on and so forth. So you see immediately there that this is, it, 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 essentially, it can be deconstructed. Right, it can be deconstructed from that, and so what is uh, what is the benefit of that? Right, uh, you know, uh, why am I big on meditation, for example, or why am I, uh, uh, you know, and, and on another topic that I like to touch on is like how can we use, for example, uh, psychedelics, you know, in order to experience this what I call selflessness. Other people call it egolessness, but let's call it selflessness, right? Um, so. Um, what is the uh, advantage of this, uh, uh, the not having a self-referential system as you move about, right? It's not, the ego is the I, it's right, everything refers to you. So someone is getting angry, that's you, right? 
it's uh, uh, someone is getting slighted, like you, blah, blah, blah. You know, you don't know your face from me or whatever. So, uh, you know, someone's screaming and yelling at you, you know, that's the ego. That's the self right there, right? But when you don't have that, uh, uh, you see that these are just sounds with meaning, you know, being produced and arising from your consciousness, right? And arising from, instead of using consciousness here, I call it um, awareness. So the ego or the self has, has, uh, is what they call, it has self-awareness, right? So it has uh, what's called self-awareness. And the way you elicit self-awareness, if you really want it to be acute, is, you know, um, stare at someone else, you know, for longer than what is socially acceptable, and he will get very self-conscious, right? And that's what's called, that's intense self-awareness, right? People with self, with uh, with stage fright, for example, have an intense, you know, uh, fear of this uh, self-awareness, like how am I going to look at um, with, with other people? And that's, that's an egoic function. That's a self-referential function, right? And so what, what can, so what happens to you then? You're suffering, right? You're you're suffering all the time because there's always this this uh, something that's always craving for something, like um, uh, or or resisting something at any given time. Like, oh, I don't want that piece too hot. It's like, <laughs> you know, there's always some something, even in these minor things, right? That you you uh, you you begin to sense that there is always someone. When there is someone there, the ego is there, right? There's someone who is wanting this, someone is doing that, etc. It's not bad, right? As long as you know, and as I'll talk about later, uh, you know, what what can you do uh, in order for you to observe your ego arise or for yourself to arise? It's like, oh, the self is arising. And that's a beautiful skill to have, to watch your, ooh, ego arising. It's like... Okay. Oh, you know, it's this someone in the back of you that says, mm, someone's getting angry. And that's, you know, it's uh, you observing the ego arise, right? And before you even sputter out some angry words, you already saw, oh, the anger arose and you ha already have examined it. It all takes three seconds, right? And you can actually, instead of reacting to a situation, you can respond. So the self-referential system it's really a source of so much suffering. In fact, I think it's the core of uh, the suffering um, of uh, human beings, right? Uh, it's, it's the core uh, of suffering of human beings. People ask me, you know, uh, you know, what did, you know, I ask people, you know, what do you want? And it's, I want to be happy and define what is happiness, right? If you don't have a definition of happiness, you can't be happy. And, you know, you know, there's a definition of happiness that can be uh, that's that's uh, fulfilled by material goods. There's a, a, a definition of happiness that's fulfilled by internal peace. But for me, um, happiness is what is for me is a, a, a minimally perturbable, right? So you're you are. <laughs> it's a sort of like a dynamic sense of equanimity, right? So and and that's that's the the whole point of this is that for you to be able to, to see that there is a self there that is suffering all the time. Like even, you know, even if you're waiting in line and you're getting impatient, who is getting impatient, right? Who is, this? This the ego is like, 
you know, you're 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 waiting in line and you're you're sort sort of like so impatient about the whole thing and you are having all these thoughts racing in your head. And what's the bad thing about that? The thoughts consume you. It becomes you, right? Everything that you think and you feel is all you. And what I I I, I uh, the the example that I like about this is has was given by Sam Harris. Like for example, you meet a friend of yours, right? You meet a friend of yours and and you. Uh, the, the, the person says, man, Katie, I can't that you did that to me. And suddenly you go, what? What the hell did I do to you? You are already consumed by that. There is no more. So the, the entire role engulfs you, right? So it becomes, the, the entire ego becomes you. There's no more space that says, whoop, you know, there is something, there's an identity inside me that this person is responding to, right? Uh, this person is responding to. So on the, on the science of it is actually quite interesting. Uh, first, the science of the DMN or default mode network was actually um, discovered by accident, right? They thought that when the mind idle or when the brain is idle, they would not be seeing any blood flow, you know, uh, everything will be, will be quiet. But they saw that when the brain is idle, um, there's actually a lot of uh, blood flow to the uh, centers of the default mode network. Now, opposite to the default mode network, it's what's called the task positive network, right? Or the TPM, the task positive network. It has several components, but I'll keep it simple here. As I said, I like dividing things into two. So the task positive network is the one that externally, you know, externally oriented. So for example, when you are uh, engrossed in a game, right? You get lost in it, or you are actually baking, or you're doing some activity that you love, right? Uh, my mother was a tailor and she would like get engrossed in, in, uh, in uh, pattern making and sewing and, you know, and time would fly, fly by and she wouldn't uh, even notice it. You know, I used to be, I used to do a lot of uh, minimally invasive neurosurgeries. And, you know, what I thought was only a 45 minute procedure was actually a four hour procedure. You know, that, that is when your task positive network, which is right in the periphery uh, here, here on, on, on the sides of the brain, not at the center, the DMN or default mode network is the center of the brain, that which refers to yourself, right? These ones are the ones uh, that are outwardly aware, right? So when you're having a flow activity, your task positive network is very active. So then, you know, um, um, if you want to have a good balance, then you must have a balance between a good balance between the activity of default mode network and your task positive network. Now, and uh, this is very important, most depressed people, uh, they find that the, the default mode network is very active, right? Because of this all of these uh, uh, self-reverberating circuits, like, oh, I'm this, and I'm this, and I'm this, and it's just going on and on and on inside. And you could see a, a, you know, a, a heavy activity of the default mode network coming in. And this will assume you know, uh, relevance when I talk about uh, psychedelics later on. So when you're looking at you know, a flow activity and so on and so forth, now you, you could see that this actually very much related to the emergence of the ego and to the self-referential system and, of course, to the task-positive network. In fact, uh, there are groups that say that consciousness perhaps uh, is uh, uh, just arises 
from the delicate balancing between the default mode network and the past positive network, right? So uh, there are groups that are saying that now that is just uh, doing that balance. So um, what's uh, uh, um, what's uh, interesting about uh, the uh, the default mode network when when we're looking at it this way, since it's the seat of the cell, right? Is that when you are totally self-absorbed and this is uh, interesting. In 2013, there was a study where people were actually allowed to stay with their thoughts or uh, give themselves an electric shock. And most uh, this was over 40 minutes. And, uh, you know, majority of the experiment participants, humans actually voted to electrocute themselves rather than be alone with their thoughts. And that's a sad indictment for us humans, right? Uh, it's like we cannot be alone with our thoughts. And that's where... Um, uh, that's because we get the ego likes to identify with your thoughts. We think that our thoughts are everything, right? It's like that's that's you. Your thought or your emotion is everything. Remember that in memory encoding in the brain, uh, usually memory is encoded both with the information and uh, with with um, uh, with the emotion with it, right? And and so when you think of something, you know say you had an argument with your spouse, uh, you know, instead of setting it down, you know, uh, last night when the argument was done, you're still continuing with the argument now that, that your spouse is already out of the house, etc. You're still arguing with your spouse in your head. What does that do to you, right? And that's basically your default mode network just churning things over and over. And what does it do to you really in, in the basic sense of things? It just really makes you suffer, right? So, um, so, so that uh, the awareness of the ego or the self, right, is a self-awareness. Now, let me introduce a term here, uh, what I call meta-awareness, right? So we don't have to deal with consciousness. Meta-awareness is when uh, there are, there are uh, techniques on teaching meditation when they try to teach you how to form a witness, something that's a non-judgmental witness to all of your thoughts, emotions, and all of that, right? And there are many apps that would teach that and so on. But I call that instead of, of uh, pure awareness, some call it pure awareness, some call it pure consciousness. Let's just call it meta-awareness. So we don't stray far, right? So there is self-awareness from the ego, and then there is the meta-awareness, that which can be aware of your ego, that, that, that can be aware of your self-referential system. And it takes a while to develop this uh, non-judgmental uh, 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 awareness of your ego rising, right? Uh, especially because there are... Um, uh, you know, uh, different ways of being able to develop it. There is, uh, of course, uh, we'll, we'll take um, meditation first. Um, you know, I've been meditating since high school, right? And they're essentially, and division by two, right? There are two types of meditation. There's a concentrative types of meditation, and there's contemplative types of meditation, right? So one is teaches you how to concentrate one teaches you how to get insight but the uh, whole point of it the whole point of it really is for you to be able to be still and accept the moment for what it is right for example and uh, 
an, an extreme example that I would think about is that you are extremely, you look at something and you get extremely agitated and angry at what's going on. There is that part of you that's aware of the anger arising, right? Uh, there's the part of you of uh, that anger arising. In fact, um, uh, before I discuss the meditation portion of concentrative and contemplative, I, I would just like to um, uh, inform your your uh, listeners, Katie, that you know Libet before this was in uh, I think eighty eight. He performed uh, um, an experiment on you know how much free will do you have. So uh, so essentially, he was uh, asking the the uh, volunteers to say exactly when. The, to mark exactly the time when they decided to reach for a glass of water, right? So they can decide whenever they wanted to. And the, he found that uh, there's about a 250-second readiness potential, right? Before the person was even aware, right, that he wanted to reach for the glass, right? Recent computations show that that's actually about seven seconds, right? The Italian group says that's seven seconds. So our reality here as presented to us is actually about seven seconds late, right? <laughs> we're, we're seven seconds late. We're just used to the lag, right? So um, our reality is about seven seconds late. So, and what I'd like, what I'd like to say here and what's the importance of realizing this? My computation, by the way, in 1992 of this lag, see, I did these studies before uh, and my studies were buried you know, elsewhere uh, is a two pi seconds, you know, close to more close to uh, seven seconds. But so what can you do, right? So what can meditation do is to bring you to that level uh, at, at the readiness potential level where these are simply arising. Remember, these are subconscious, right? These are subconscious things uh, that uh, that simply arise. So um, and then it's presented to your consciousness. So before, it, what's the big source of suffering? when your entire self, right, is your reality. It's like the, the, the Katie who is, who is uh, uh, you know, absolutely concerned that this, this, this is, isn't working and, and so on. And there's nothing else, right? There's no space around uh, observing the Katie. And that's, the, that's uh, um, when, when they say you're asleep, right? You're asleep because you're, you're basically being carried by your thoughts where your uh, your thoughts uh, take you and enlightenment you know or or uh, waking up is realizing that those thoughts are just occurring uh, occurring in your uh, in your conscious or your awareness right so um, so let's take a look at what uh, how uh, concentrative uh, uh, meditation might help right? concentrative is when you know this uh, focus on your breath right you can um, you, you can uh, focus focus on your breath. Uh, you focus on uh, uh, sound, right? Or you focus on uh, a, ma uh, um, a mandala or an image, you know. And you could see this. Uh, this this can be taught, and they uh, allow you what's called a one pointedness. Uh, it allows you to focus, right? It, it allows you to focus and just be totally aware of one thing, right? Just be totally aware of one thing in 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 everything. Like uh, for example, when you're aware of the breath, you're told uh, you know uh, focus on your breath. Don't lean on it. Uh, you know, don't anticipate it. Uh, you know, uh, merely receive the breath. Right? You you merely receive the breath. Meaning you have to relax into into feeling. You know this 
process and you focus so you feel everything about it, right? And there's nothing in you that's resisting the breath or holding the breath. And many students of meditation sort of like hold their breath and so on and so forth. And this is your ego trying to exert control, right? Uh, over the, the whole process rather than just relaxing and see that this is a natural process that can occur any more than you cannot control the heartbeat, right? So those are concentrative and, you know, uh, there's a, a unifocal where they just focus on the breath and then there's, there's um, a, a choice where you, you basically flip from one to the other. And here's another uh, important concept to, to know is attention, right? So the key, the key, uh, the key uh, element here is attention. And remember that attention also arises from your awareness, right? So Whereas before, Katie, we thought that we were taught that attention is like a spotlight, right? We spot, we do a spotlight on what we want to do. Recent findings actually show that what happens when you focus attention on something is that all the other areas in the brain that uh, are not um, going to participate sort of like dim themselves down, and the one that uh, is focused on attention. This is just you know, um, less than a year old, that findings is less than a year old. So we still have the, the spotlight model of attention, but rather more, this is more like a filter model of attention now. And you know, that's coming from the brain and even attention arises, right? So you could see, you could feel that attention also arise, whereas the ego would say, well, attention is my tool. I will focus my attention. You know, I am the one thinking, I am the one doing this. But um, the whole the whole point of this is, for you to train the mind to say, okay, here, here's, see, being able to focus on the breath without thinking about anything is is a, an ordeal for many people, right? Uh, even just for a minute. Um, uh, in fact, I ch challenged my patients before, you know, they would come to me and I go, uh, I, you know, Dr. Ted, I want to be happy. I said, you want to be happy? Play the happiness game with me, okay? I said, starting now, uh, to us, I will time you. I said, uh, uh, Starting from now until when you say it's over, I said, tell me when a thought would occur to you. So I said, the longer that you don't have any thoughts intruding, I said, the more happy you are. Um, remember the, the study that, um, uh, that they did, Katie, where they were um, uh, in a, via an app, they were surveying people on their happiness and how much thinking they were doing. And the people who were doing too much thinking were actually the most unhappy. And the, the funny part of it is that some of them who were surveyed, like were thinking about something else while having sex. So, <laughs> and, then, and it's like, seriously, but there was a, a good chunk of people who are thinking about something else while having sex. So can you imagine that? Not being able to stay in the moment of what you're doing, right? It's just an example of, um, of, uh, of what it is. So, um, and then there's uh, what's called, you know, uh, choiceless. Uh, you know, you basically allow your, your attention to go where it wants to go. So that's a concentrative type. And there, the contemplative types are, you know, are, are the ones that, um, are usually taught in monasteries, right? Dzogchen, Bon, you know, uh, stuff where uh, th these are, you know, um, uh, this is where I'm trained at uh, in terms of uh, uh, the contemplative modes. In From high school, I was in a concentrative thought, but uh, the con contemplative modes give you a different sense, right? It allows you to, th there is a, like, for example, with 
uh, uh, practice called Dzogchen, right? That the D Z O G C H E N, right? Um, it, what what um, you know? It's becoming more popular now. Uh, before you know, when when I was in my thirties, no one would actually know this, and this was what I was uh, trained on. So, um, um, what 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 we basically um, uh, it uh, does is uh, there's a, a actually a teacher who points out you know the true that the true nature of consciousness or the you know what is it. Uh, what what's the true nature of consciousness and so on. So, but now we can point it out the way I do with my pointing out, you know, is I do it through neuro, neuroscientific methods, right? You have a default mode network, you have you have a task positive network, you have a meta awareness and so on. And really uh, one of the most important skills that you can have is to watch yourself arise, to watch the ego arise at every moment, right? When you're working on a document, at home, you're typing up something, um, or uh, when you are, uh, you know, folding clothes or or doing laundry, etc. Look, your ego doesn't have a, need to play a role there. Instead of saying, you know, why the hell did did she stain this clothing and blah blah blah? It's like really, you know, it's already happened. It's already there. <laughs> it's it's like it, it's like. That's the, the moment where you are. And being able to recognize that, that that's causing your suffering, you're already, you know, uh, the, the recognition of the fact that there is that part of you that's just aware of like, oh, you know, there's, there's this part of me that's, there's, there's this part of me that's actually getting irritated. There's part of me that's, uh, you know, or uh, when you catch, see, when you catch yourself thinking about, say, you broke up with someone for kids with, uh, for parents here with, Teenagers, right, with their first love and, and, and so on and so forth, they um, they sort of like it's they think it's the end of the world because you know my life is shattered, etc., etc. And that's what romantic love is actually. It's a very contracting um, uh, uh, feeling, right? It's because it's uh, it's programmed by evolution for survival and reproduction. Uh, it's it's built in there. It's a very it's very biochemical. Of course, we built up a lot of stories around it, right? Stories and stories and stories. But inside, really, we've uh, you know we we have uh, just this uh, biological drive. But being able to recognize all of these thoughts, like uh, for example, in post-traumatic uh, stress disorders, right? Um, and I'm going to segue now on um, on what is being done in in the uh, psychedelic world, right? Now, let's start with um, a one that is uh, actually a non-common psychedelic. It's uh, called ketamine, and I've seen, uh, you know, uh, if, uh, um, you know, um, I've seen uh, or I've met uh, therapists uh, who uh, have done this and. And um, you know, for, uh, for example, for rape victims, right? Um, it's very hard. It's very hard to, uh, or or for battered wives, or you know, uh, for people who've been physically abused and so on. It's very very difficult to go into therapy uh, because you have to. When you talk about it, you have to relieve the entire situation, right? You have to relieve the entire story. With together with all the emotion, I said memory, uh, you know, stored with both the information and the emotion. Now, what ketamine um, uh, uh, can do is the dissociation and uh, the dissociation. And uh, what it does, it actually, what it does is actually it dampens 
shuts down your default mode network. In other words, it can do what's called a DMN reset. So it's very short, right? It's a very short. It can reset your DMN and can give you uh, relief, right, from the depression that can can uh, that's resulting from your post-traumatic disorder, right? So. Um, uh, that's that's one. So ketamine is a dis dissociative anesthetic, right? Uh, it's used as an anesthetic for horses. It's also used. Uh, it was used extensively during the war uh, for surgery uh, of um, of the soldiers, right? Because it doesn't have to be refrigerated. It's very stable and so on. So you could see ketamine clinics popping up all over, right? And um, uh, so. Um, Ketamine is basically um, uh, unusual uh, in that it basically um, what's what's called it it inhibits the inhibitor. So meaning meaning uh, instead of uh, inhibiting something, it makes something go, and it makes your past positive network go. Meaning it doesn't it 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 uh, doesn't make you focus on yourself. It dissociates you from yourself and. Uh, gives you um, uh, that uh, you know uh, activity of the fast positive network. Now, what's the uh, significance uh, of that, really? And the significance of that is, as we get through get through the different psychedelics, you could see that most psychedelics are actually doing the same thing, which is they actually try to dampen down the activity or default mode network. Remember, when your brain's not doing anything, it's gonna think about a lot of stupid things. So uh, um, the, uh, uh, parents usually ask me, you know, my kids are bored. I said, there's a, a difference between just being bored or bored with something, right? So just being bored is different than bored with something, right? So usually it's just they're bored with some repetitive task. And what you need to do is give them another one that's simulating they'll get bored with it of course their attention will will flip from one to the other right and that's just an aside for you know because uh, parents usually ask me that question and you have to identify whether or not it's a generalized feeling of boredom which is a different case altogether from just being bored for doing a particular thing so so all of this uh, that I'm talking about now, which are being investigated, right? Uh, so uh, for example, uh, ketamine has just been approved as an antidepressant, as I said before, you know, when your default mode network is hyperactive, right? hyperactive, it says, oh my God, I'm no good, I'm blue, you know, it's like, I'm such a, a poor spouse, I can't even do this, and la, 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 la. Um, uh, essentially what it does is that it decreases the blood flow to the default mode network and it quiets it down, right? And um, and you see there, the ego dissolves, right? And there's a thing called the K-hole. It's like, you know, where you totally disappear into the uh, K-hole, you know? And, and uh, it's some experience because if you are used to having a strong ego, you'll actually fight the disappearance of that ego, right? It's just like when you have a hard time yielding to anesthesia, right? Uh, it's it's uh, the, sa the same process. So, so... When you take a look now at, uh, at for example, uh, uh, the MDMA, which is the, uh, the other one that's being investigated, right? MDA, MDMA uh, is actually uh, uh, now, you know, after, after you know, when you're dealing with acute depression uh, um, or treatment, sorry, sorry when you're treat, uh, dealing with treatment resistant depression, right? Uh, you can give um, uh, 
ketamine is now approved in the form of esketamine, right? It's a it's a spray, um, and it's extremely expensive. So um, uh, it's extremely expensive spray, but it's very effective for treatment res resistant depression, right? And um, for a PTSD, right? Uh, so what's on phase three trials now is P uh, for for PTSD, like for example, if you're um, a rape victim or you fought in the war and or, uh, you know, even a sudden breakup, uh, like a loss of a loved one, et cetera, where a, sim a single book or, or picture can trigger all of these memories that are very painful to you. Uh, you know, and if you really can take it, it's, it's actually part of a, what's called a post-traumatic stress, right? So like a sudden accident, you know, you, you lost someone and so on. So what uh, they, do, they do now is, is this very low dose uh, MDMA. Uh, for for those uh, of you there, you know the street name is ecstasy, right? Uh, but the ex please the ecstasy that you find in there are uh, the you know dirty forms of ecstasy. This is like medical grade of ecstasy for research purposes, and they found out that um, um, having a therapist uh, as, uh, give you like a two session two to three sessions of uh, MDMA assisted psychotherapy you know they have a very high success rate anywhere from 60 to 80% you know um, cure of uh, post traumatic stress disorder i'd like to say it this way you know if you're a rape victim then what what happens is that you're able to talk to your psychiatrist or to your psychotherapist you know about the information of the uh, of the rape without the emotion of the rape and so you're able to cut that too, and and um, and uh, it has very high success rate in keeping that permanent. So whenever you tell your story, it now doesn't induce all those emotions. And usually, that is enough for the person to be able to move on, right? Because he's not burdened with all of those state changes in the body that go on when the emotions are there or are flashing back, and so on. So um, there is, uh, of course, uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a large uh, uh, body of uh, research now on psilocybin or uh, mushrooms, right? The, the magic mushrooms, and um, psilocybin is actually on. Um, it, it does the same thing, right? If you look, take a look at the scan of, uh, say. Uh, an fMRI scan of someone uh, on a full dose of mushrooms. Um, what, what you see is that the default mode network is very quiet. And then the task positive network that is normally quiet now has a lot of communicating uh, networks. Normally, those are prohibited by your ego. Those are prohibited by yourself. Like, hey, you know, pay attention because I am the conductor here. You cannot do that. Right, so uh, that's why people who take it say they get more creative, etc. But the other thing that they experience also is a loss of the self, right? A loss of the ego. And so when you come from a journey, for example, a mushroom journey, people usually experience, um, you know, more creativity uh, and losing your default mode network or the self, where uh, it's me against the world, makes you feel more connected to everyone else, right? And uh, you can tell people have experienced psychedelics, etc. They just don't talk about me 
uh, and everyone else, they say, what about the other species in the planet? And what about the planet itself? How, we, how do we take care of Earth? How do we take care of this? It's like, so you now have an expanded consciousness, which means you're not just dealing with what you need and what your family needs and what the society needs. But you take a look at what everyone else needs, including what the planet needs, right? So, and that's that's an effect uh, of uh, you know uh, uh, when when you when you hear like spiritual sayings like you know the the whole root of suffering is from us being separated, you know, uh, being separate from the universe, etc. Well, there's your neuroscientific basis for it, right? You're, you know, so uh, and and um. um you know, you could uh, now this being investigated for a lot of things, for depression, for for drug addiction, and so on. And of course, there are um, there are traditional uh, uh, like ayahuasca, uh, for example. Uh, ay ay ayahuasca is uh, uh, one of the sacred brews, right? Uh, um, uh, in in uh, Peru, and uh, it's composed of uh, essentially two elements uh, and. Uh, what's called a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, something that uh, inhibits your liver from degrading the molecule and, uh, of course, the plant that delivers the, the methotryptamine molecule. And it's a long journey, right? And if you go to Peru to, ex uh, to experience it, it comes with a lot of the cultural, I call them baggage, but that's not a, that's not a nice word, <laughs> all, all, all the cultural frills, you know, that, that come with it, right? Um, and uh, from my experience with it, and that's the reason why I created my own version, since I'm also trained in pharmacology, is that I found the experience very difficult in a sense that, um, you know, um, uh, the, the uh, inhibitor that I used, uh, that they used for me was not the traditional one. Um, you know, I, I found it a very difficult experience uh, because I kept on vomiting, right? Um, and I said, I could probably make this into a drug-like formula. So I actually found uh, a drug that is a reversible inhibitor. And then, um, uh, you know, in a country, not the United States, was able to, um, you know, get some crystals and actually uh, titrate the dose so that, uh, you know, I could get on, like, I could get on, like, uh, for example, uh, if you know, I'm a new user, then this is uh, only how much you could take and, and so on. So um, it's, it's more like making it, uh, uh, a lot of people are mad at me because I'm taking away the naturalness, the, you know, the ceremony and so on. But for me also, if you want this to get accepted, I want to know what's going in my body, right? I, I want to know exactly what's going in my body, how safe it is, what is the tolerable levels and so on and so forth. So I'd rather, you know, uh, so I created this uh, term instead of ayahuasca, I called it pharmawasca. <laughs> so after pharmacology. Right? Uh, anyway, uh, what's uh, interesting here uh, and for your listeners is that you will hear something like uh, uh, a receptor called 5-HT2A, right? And a 5-HT2A receptor is a, in the family of uh, the serotonin receptors, right? Uh, serotonin receptors are serotonin, you know, is uh, responsible for mood, right? And uh, and uh, uh, if you heard about Prozac, I think uh, all of you are old enough to have heard of Prozac, one of the first uh, selective uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, right? So it prevents uh, serotonin from uh, from being uh, destroyed by the enzymes of the body, and 
and it's it was used for the treatment of depression. Right. So, what happens when you're except for ketamine, right? Uh, you know, um, uh, essentially, and uh, and except for ketamine and MDMA. So, you take a look at, for example, psilocybin LSD. Um, uh, psilocybin LSD. Uh, 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 DMT, dimethyltryptamine from ayahuasca, uh, these are what's called the classic psychedelics, right? Meaning they act on the 5-HT2 receptor um, of, the, of the cell. And the 5-HT2 receptor is a serotonin receptor. This episode is brought to you by Wellness. That's wellness with an E on the end. My new personal care line of products that are natural and good for you, hair care, toothpaste, hand sanitizer, and more. You've likely heard that much of what you put on your skin is absorbed into your body, which is a good reason to avoid harmful products. And I feel like many of us do, but you can also use this to your advantage by putting beneficial things on your body. Realizing that many of my closest friends and even family members still used certain conventional personal care products, even though they cleaned up many other parts of their diet and wouldn't dream of eating processed food or using harmful cleaners, but they weren't willing to sacrifice how they looked and felt when it came to personal care products. I set out to create alternatives that outperformed the existing conventional options, but without harmful ingredients and with beneficial ingredients that benefit the body from the outside in, and thus Wellness was born. Our good for you hair care and mineral rich toothpaste nourish your body from the outside in, while you hopefully nourish it from the inside out to have amazing hair and teeth. Check it out and learn more at wellness.com. That's wellness with an E on the end, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-E.com. This podcast is sponsored by Olipop Natural Sodas. They use functional ingredients that combine the benefits of prebiotics, plant fibers, and botanicals to support your microbiome and benefit your digestive health. 90% of Americans consume more than the USDA's daily recommended added sugar intake, which is 30 grams. In fact, many of us consume way, way more than that. And sweetened beverages like soda are one of the leading sources of added sugars in the American diet. Olipop is much, much lower in sugar than conventional sodas with only two to five grams of sugar from natural sources, no added sugars. Here's an example. Their vintage cola has just two grams of sugar compared to a regular cola, which has 39 grams of sugar, which means one can is more than the added sugar recommended for an entire day. Their orange squeeze has five grams of sugar compared to other orange sodas, which clock in at 44 grams of sugar. And all of their products are non-GMO, vegan, paleo, and keto friendly with less than eight grams of net carbs per can. I've worked out a special deal just for Wellness Mama podcast listeners. You can save 15% off your entire purchase from Olipop. I recommend starting with their variety pack, unless you already know your favorite flavors. And the variety pack is a great way to try all of the flavors that they have. My favorites are the strawberry and the orange, but my kids really like the root beer. Check them all out by going to drinkolipop.com forward slash wellnessmama and use the code wellnessmama at checkout to claim the deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-O-L-I-P-O-P.com slash wellnessmama. You can also find them in stores across the country, including Kroger, Whole Foods, and more. So what's the value of this in uh, examining 
awareness or examining consciousness or and and uh, Stan Groff, who is a, a researcher here, uh, very you know one of the gods uh, essentially uh, uh, of in the field uh, said that you know um, psychedelics are like uh, you know a telescope is to astronomy, uh, you know, and a microscope is to biology. So psychedelics is to the mind. So so your your um, your psychedelics are your either your telescope or your microscope to the mind, um, and to, to examine it, uh, to examine what's going on in it. And but the major action that I, I uh, that uh, you know you would experience it on a full dose uh, on a full dose or so it's called a tripping dose or a full dose or a journeying dose for those who don't like the word trip on a journeying dose um, is uh, essentially the dissolution of the self, right? Um, but what is um, not good about it, uh, in a sense, is that it replaces the contents of your consciousness with something really fantastic, or if you're having a bad trip, a phantasmagoric, right? Uh, or they don't use bad trip now, they call them challenging trips, because you learn, <laughs> because you learn something from them. But uh, the way I look at this, Katie, is really very simple. Um, when you go to the gym, right? Uh, you go to the gym, you work out, right? Uh, you work out and, you know, for those bodybuilders, they would take like anabolic steroids, right? And for me, psychedelics, so meditation is like a mental gym, right? It's, uh, it's like a mental gym. And, you know, psychedelics are like your anabolic steroids for your mental gym. You know, you don't take them that often. Right, but you would like to experience what it is to be selfless, and once you have experienced that, you can bring it back to your meditation practice and say, "Okay, that was the experience of selflessness." Right, that's the experience of selflessness. So that's the um, uh, you know, uh, uh, and and uh, I you know I don't. You know, I, I don't have a recommendation one way or the other, but the way if you're going to take LSD or or or, or um, uh, uh, magic mushrooms, which is very common uh, these days, or uh, uh, or mushrooms or or um, uh, DMT, right? If you're going to to take this, uh, go beyond, like get blasted into the stratosphere. You know why? Because when you stay, uh, when you're too afraid and stay underneath the, the, where you get blasted out, you're going to work through all of your shit. Like all of that emotion, et cetera, is going to be painful. So I'd like you to experience once at least just being free of those, right? There will be a time and place to work through that. Shit. Or you can go to your therapist to work through that. But to experience that kind of selflessness, right? Uh, even just once in your life. Uh, I think, uh, and this is just me personally, that uh, I think, um, uh, you know, uh, in any one lifetime, uh, it would be, it would be um, uh, a regret, you know, if I didn't take at least one journey, even with a mushroom. Now, Katie, let's, so, so I consider this like that. Yeah, they are the anabolic steroids of the mental gym. So you guys, you know, you have to have a mental gym too, you know, always thinking about your body, but what about your mind, right? You, you know, you have to have this, all this mental fitness stuff, 
right? Are you playing video games with your kids? You know, those are very good for, for you know, um, for spatial orientation, developing of a, uh, of new uh, circuits in your brain, et cetera, et cetera. But the major skill uh, that that uh, you get uh, from from uh, meditation really is to be able to to witness the thoughts and emotions arise before you could they could even catch you fully, right? Because when you see something and you get immediately angry, that's suffering, man. You're immediately screaming. It's like, holy, f I just screamed, right? But the the mere fact that you know at, at the beginning when you're able to catch yourself and you already scream and you catch yourself the recognition is already uh winning the game you already won you know one one part of the game and if you do little bits of that the whole day can you imagine this becomes longer and longer just the recognition is enough right that's a recognition is enough um and um but of course you must realize that you're suffering for example uh, i like to say that i am not the person who likes you know tidal waves of joy and deep whirlpools of emotion i don't like those i mean those are roller coasters some people like those well yeah but for me no gentle waves are me yeah i i, I don't i don't do you know it's like it's like you get caught up in this and they become your total world right and uh the the usual um uh image that they project is that you know all of these emotions and thoughts, etc., they're waves in the ocean, right? And you are actually the water uh, underneath. So if you you can just observe these waves just rise back and forth, right? Then uh, uh, that is essentially what you want to do. In Dzogchen, uh, we look at it as you know the sky. Is the sky is always beautiful despite the clouds that are in there because the clouds are your thoughts, emotions. They change. They just come and go. You know, you don't have to latch onto them right because they're not you right it's like it's like i can't believe he said that about me i can't believe he unfriended me right and we're not being nice in social media too because that actually encourages a lot of egoic um rewards right and you have to be and that's where you actually need to be but more meditative and seeing that as you can see i'm absent in social media um, you know um, and the um the, now, uh, Katie, what's nice is, is that um, there are microdosing regimens for those who are actually afraid, right? People, you know, uh, people ask me about this, you know, but about microdosing, etc. Microdosing can give you, you know, doesn't give you the the high or give you anything. It just gives you a certain level of awareness, uh, right? In fact, one of my projects right now, my secret project in my company is, can I create an enlightenment trochee, something that you could shove up your upper cheek and gum and and you know for at least eight hours you're able to observe your ego arise you know and you can you can work without a self uh, without an ego in there just you know everything because it's possible to to live without a self integrating everything right um and when it does arise you know you are very well aware that it is uh, that it has arisen right so um, in 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 microdosing, uh, essentially, it gives you at least uh, a, a taste of what it is to be, um, for lack of a better word, dissociated, at least mildly dissociated. Meaning, there's a buffer or a sense of separateness. You know, in fact, uh, microdose LSD, for example, I uh, uh, in in the experience that I had is is more like 
I, what I say is I feel matrixy today, you know, like being in the matrix. It's like you, you are aware. It's like there's a certain awareness that you are in the matrix, right? And it's usually one, one uh, tenth of the tripping dose, you know, as uh, Fadiman had suggested. So that's uh, uh, if 100 micrograms is the tripping dose, then 10 micrograms is the um, is a dose, and you take it, uh, you know, uh, basically three days apart, uh, say Monday and Thursday, you know, and, and you don't take it in successive days. Um, and you know, it's been for so many years now; it's been the rage all over Silicon Valley programmers, etc. But what is interesting, uh, and the, 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 there's the um, uh, danger in it, is that there are now people who actually take. Uh, CEOs and and so on on uh, microdose uh, they give the microdoses and then they go for a walk in the forest and they talk about so how can I increase my company profits how can I, it's like shall I use child's labor and shall I pollute the earth a little bit more and and so on and so forth and that's the danger when your um, when your ego has not been blown or you have not experienced at least being it disappearing completely right uh, right before your eyes is integrating. And people, um, for example, um, uh, on on uh, uh, ayahuasca journeys, uh, who have a very strong self of self, sense of self, can have a very very difficult time, you know, relinquishing that sense. And and that's why I, I said, you know, um, it would be nice for you to microdose if you have already experienced what it is to have your ego blown, and then you could see this, right? Uh, you, you could uh, reap the benefits of it. Uh, for uh, psilocybin, um, uh, you could, you know, it's uh, like a, a, a two, two to three grams. It's like the tripping dose, right? And uh, they um, were recommending like um, anywhere to, from uh, 200 to 300 milligrams. So. Uh, again, it's the same the same scheduling as uh, these are not recommendations, by the way. These are all over the internet. You can you can you can search them. Um, you know they're uh, they're there, and uh, they're not they're coming from me. Um, but then these are these are like uh, you know you experience that sense of at least you know when you're working, you experience a sense of connectedness with what you're doing, right? And you're. Uh, able to, for me, uh, especially, you're able, I'm able to catch quickly um, what the other person's motivation is, right? Uh, because some, sometimes, see, the, the thing that gets us into a lot of trouble, Katie, is assumption. We're assuming something about something else. Remember that saying, don't assume it makes an ass of you and me. And Although it's a very common saying, we don't really internalize it. It's like we're assuming something, but actually we're assuming wrong, right? And it's like, oh no, that's not what he really meant, right? And we've already, you know, spewed our anger. We've already criticized. We've already, you know, um, whatever, um, uh, given the punishment and, and so on. So that's what this microdoses at least uh you know do uh, for for many they use this as a creativity boost right and um for some uh people that i know they actually have stopped taking uh antidepressants this is not an advice i know i'm a doctor it's not an advice but uh you know um, they were able to wean themselves uh, out of it with in consultation of course with their psychotherapist now remember that the uh, psychedelic assisted um, uh, therapy, you know, is uh, there. Are, you can go on training, uh, for example, with MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for 
psychedelic studies that started by Vic Dublin, um, uh, for example, you know, to, to be able to know how to do these things. Um, before you engage in anything like this, you know, um, you know, talk to someone who's knowledgeable or someone who's done it. And, you know, um, if you are or you really want to do it, do your research and then get a sitter. A sitter is someone who is going to uh, sit with you through the journey, preferably someone who has uh, had the journey himself several times, right? Um, and, and knows what to, to expect. And um, for example, at Hopkins, at the uh, clinic of uh, um, Roland Griffiths, right? They're doing uh, a lot of studies on, uh, on mushrooms. Um, and they rank these experiences as one of the top five experiences of their lives, right? But they are very, you know, you notice that these guys are very non-obtrusive, right? They're not, not uh, they will hold your hand, et cetera, but they will not intrude into your journey. And this is for the full dose, right? So that's the, so you could see that um, all of these uh, psychedelics are now, you know, as I said, MDMA is on phase three studies. Uh, ketamine has already been approved for uh, treatment resistant depression. So we have uh, psilocybin is coming up next. And uh, so, and then uh, DMT is uh, uh, now, you know, you know, there are preliminary studies on addiction, for example, and so on. There are others uh, like ibogaine, um, which is, you know, uh, what's called the, the overnight treatment for cocaine addiction. And they have had, um, if you look, uh, search for Ibogaine um, on the web, uh, you could see, you know, uh, these parents, for example, there's uh, this documentary of uh, this father very angry at why we're not popularizing this more because his daughter ran away at 13, right? And, um, be, you know, and got addicted to cocaine and sold her body on the streets. And she, she on, on, on rehab, she relapsed times until he found out about Ibogaine, you know, went to a clinic in Mexico and just one, uh, you know, one overnight medically supervised session and then came back with uh, uh, continuing uh, psychotherapy with a psychiatrist and, you know, um, got, uh, got over uh, relapsing uh, cocaine addiction. So there, there are uh, um, uh, a lot of this. And I am sorry that what has happened to the United States is that, uh, you know, during uh, the Nixon administration um, and uh, even before that, you know, people uh, uh, were actually fearing, you know, it's sort of like we swept all of these things under the rug. You know, as uh, having having uh, uh, no um, uh, medical value or no use whatsoever, but it is actually very funny. Uh, like for example, we put marijuana THC as a schedule one, and then put cocaine as schedule two. So you could see how messed up that is. I wanted to say another word, but um, <laughs> I forgot this. How family oriented this is. Um, so. Um, so you could see that, and and uh, uh, you could see that many of the studies are, have actually been done despite all of these restrictions. And why is this, Katie? You know, why why did do this? Because we are running out of things to give, right? We did not, in, you know, there are many many clinical um, studies that were done, uh, for example, already on LSD uh, uh, before which we just all swept under the rug, right? 
so we have we have all of this data before what I call the prohibition, all the scheduling and so on. And what is sad is that all of you guys, you know, who were born in the 80s and who were growing up as kids and, you know, and uh, seeing this TV ad, this is your brain on drugs. And, uh, you know, and, and then they smash this, this egg and so on. It's like that, you know, that's brainwashing. So <laughs> that is what I call uh, social cultural programming, right? You were programmed that way. So the uh so it's very hard i mean even even for some uh professional athletes or or, or actors that, that i um i deal with right um in my uh, clinical practice you know they they have this fear even if they know that this is like it has been put in there by the television programming by culture etc they're still afraid to touch it right they're they're afraid to to go into it and um, uh, it's it's really quite interesting that they pass this fear on to their kids, right? And and um, and that was all a lot of really great propaganda for for the government. You know, uh, it had it had nothing to do with the scientific merit of things. Now, if you now go to uh, around the world, right, you could see that all of these substances uh, have been used for thousands of years, you know, um, the shamans, uh, those uh, cultures with uh, shamans, for example, they use this to, um, it is normal for them to know that there are other dimensions. Like for example, when you're on ayahuasca, right? What comes to you when you come back is that you have, um, you have, a, 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 you come back with like, there are other um, uh, dimensions out there that you can't see. Right, and these are dimensions that the shamans see. You know, when they're on on ayahuasca, um, you know, um, you, you see the um, uh, the or some some the origin story of Santa Claus, right, on Amanita Muscaria and the and the mushroom with uh, with a uh, polka dot uh, cap, you know, and and uh, you could see uh, stories around the world uh, that uh, uses even even uh, in the Eleusinian mysteries in Greece, right? Uh, we don't know what the soma is, but these are all uh, psychedelics. So psychedelics has played a long role. In fact, there's uh, oh, Terence McKenna introduced what's called the stoned ape theory, right? Of uh, uh, of language where you know like ate this uh, you know ate this mushroom and like. Oh, you know, suddenly is uh, able to produce his sounds and make all these connections and so on. Um, so we don't we don't know. But for me, it's like, why don't we use this as as a, a, a microscope or a telescope, if you will, uh, to our minds? Um, because you know, as Socrates said, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living. And if you really pay attention, Katie, you know, all of your experience. Remember that. Uh, I, I say experiencing, right? Because um, I, I take experience not as a noun, but it's something that's continuous. It's like a self. I call it selfing, right? You're selfing all the time. You're producing a self all the time, right? You're selfing all the time. You're experiencing all the time. That which tries to cling on to experience or wants to have experience, that's the ego, right? Rather than having the experience itself arise, 
So that's the clinging, right? I want this experience. I don't want that experience. I want this experience. I want. I don't want that experience. That's the ego or the self right there, right? That's why meditation teaches you to just let your thoughts arise and emotions arise, etc., and not be caught by them. And when you're meditating, you know, the, the name of the game uh, is to know when you've been captured by thought. And um, I, I, I say, I say this: the game is, you know. Um, uh, don't allow yourself to be hijacked by your thoughts and emotions as they arise, right? Or if you if you if they get high if you get hijacked by them, immediate recognition that you've been hijacked. You know you've already won the game. Next, you know, next round. So because it's impossible not to have any thought or emotion, right? But being able to watch them arise without any judgment, right? Uh, is uh, without any judgment um, is um, uh, you know is the name of the game in for me in not suffering. Right, because once you become identified with that thought, then suddenly you are feeling this. Hmm, you know, I need to make this thing happen. Uh, you know, you have all of your plans and and so on. Because, and that's what they say uh, always. In you know, it's like why the why the mind can never be in the present. Right, it's always like like what's going to happen in the future this is what happened in the past it's always in those two places that it goes it never stays at the present moment and what meditation or you know psychedelic teaches you is you know there is a place to stay uh, at the present moment and you know uh judicious use uh of uh, these uh molecules you know can allow you to feel selflessness right and you know, bolster it with uh, your meditation practice. And the, the thing that uh, people misconstrue about meditation is that it's something that's formal and that you sit down and do it. No, that's a formal meditation that you do, that you sit, right? Your life should be a meditation in itself. Like each and every moment that you do, there is that meta-awareness that's just there, that's just experiencing everything for what it is, right? Oh, there's the pain, there's a this, there's a that, right? See, the, the suffering is the story that we create out of it, right? It's like, oh, there's this pain, right? Uh, it's like, why the f did I, you put the chair in there? Now I hit my shin. That's the pain, right? <laughs> because there's a story that's created out of it. And we're very, very good at that. I mean, um, uh, now you know, Katie, why um, when I tell people that I actually, um, you know what i'm allergic to when people ask me like what's your story i have no story i'm allergic to stories because they're the cause of so much pain right but it's the way we it's the way we learn it's the way we teach is to create these stories and uh you know so be careful of the meanings that you put in just be careful that it's just a meaning right it's a meaning that's there right um and you have to be able to separate the syntax from the semantics right and uh, and the semantics from the semiotics, and the semiotics is, of course, the context of the meaning, right? Because uh, the, the the meaning changes according to its context. So these are very uh, very uh, important things to to look at. Now, uh, as you probably have deduced, you know, I have had these um, these uh, uh, experiences, uh, both the full doses and uh, um, the micro doses, uh, as they call them, and I would like. To ask you about what your experience is and with what uh, molecules.
Well, I'll say you have an incredible ability to know the questions I was going to ask you and answer them without me asking. Um, I love how you basically gave a scientific explanation for some quotes that I love about how we suffer more in imagination than reality and how you shouldn't believe everything you think or the often misattributed one that all of man's problems stem from his inability to sit quietly in a room alone and how you, there's actually, we would literally rather shock ourselves. Um, so for me, what I discovered in my own journey of this is I did have sexual trauma. I was raped in high school. And so I identify very much with some of these things you've mentioned in studies. And for a very long time, I think my ego did a great job of keeping me safe, but it also kept me from working through a lot of things because it didn't feel safe. And I had certainly attached a lot of meaning and had trouble in traditional talk therapy, talking through some of those things. Um, and this, I believe was also very much connected to what ended up being thyroid disease, to having an inability to lose weight. My body didn't feel safe doing that because it was protecting me. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.